Teenagers. I'm James Schoen. And I'm James Certin. Conversation, expertise and advice on the world and well-being of our teenagers. Uh, welcome to Talking Teenagers and welcome especially to Carl Hotwood, who is an e-safety expert. Welcome, Carl. Thanks very much. Really good to be here. Now, we should tell the listener that we're right next door to a building site at the moment, so they're going to hear all kinds of drills and we can actually see sort of things being cascaded along by cranes, which is all quite exciting, but perhaps not the best for a background noise. But anyway. Yeah, apologies for that. That's fine. Carl, tell us uh, a little bit about what you do then and, and how you came to do it. Yeah, I mean, so my background's in teaching. Um, I was a primary school teacher and then a primary school head teacher for a number of years. But, but for the last 12, this has been my job uh, working in online safety. So I do a lot of work in schools, talking to pupils and parents and teachers and looking at different sort of challenges, that, I guess, that they face online. I also sit on various advisory boards and, and committees. Um, so the UK Council for Internet Safety, who are looking at policy in this space. And the other bit of my work, which is a fairly significant bit, is that I um, have a contract with European Schoolnet, and they work for the European Commission, where they coordinate the network of safer internet centres around Europe. And my role there is, is managing the helpline network. So this is helplines that have been set up to support children with challenges that they face online, really. Wow. So very um, far-reaching work that you do, really. Yeah, I guess so. And, and I mean, I always think I'm, I'm very lucky because all, all I worry about now is online safety. And I'm very aware that when I go into schools or talk to parents, that that's just a tiny bit of, of the sort of work that they need to be doing and being concerned with. But if you've been involved with it for 12 years, I expect you've seen incredible changes in that time. Yes, yes, I, I think so. Um, and I think we're probably doing more with the preventative stuff now. I think in the early days, it was very much reacting and thinking, why on earth didn't we think that this could have been a problem? Um, I think certainly in schools, um, I think we're getting better at sort of planning and educating. What sorts of things have you seen? Have, you know, what, Where have all the problems occurred, as it were? And, and how do you work back on those? Yeah, I think I think the problems or the challenges um, have occurred be because we're giving children and young people really powerful connected devices, which is amazing. And I, and I think I wouldn't want them to, to not have access to the amazing opportunities that the internet will bring. But, you know, the fact that they can live stream from a device that they carry around in their pocket, the fact that they can download millions of apps, some of which are appropriate and some of which aren't. And I, and I think, you know, the sort of arrival of social media where they're actually able to produce and share content, which, which is just something that before the internet came, very few um, people, let alone young people, would have been able to do with the sort of reach that they can now. So I think that's been the big, the big change, really. So what would you say the, um, the principal challenges are? The, the, I mean, social media in many ways is, is an amazing thing, isn't it? Absolutely. But what are the sort of the main challenges that parents need to be aware of? So I, I guess one of the things that we talk a lot in schools about, specifically with relation to social media, is, is online reputation, digital footprint, whatever you want to call it. And I think as soon as a young person starts posting content, they're creating that digital footprint. And I think what they have to realise, and I guess all of us do, is that you know when we apply for that job, that place at university somebody is going to be checking us out online. And they'll just be putting our name into Google and pressing search and seeing what appears. But I think what we know about young people is that the, the prefrontal cortex of the teenage brain 
It hasn't developed to a point where they can think about deal with, manager, understand risk or think about consequences. And I think from my memory, for girls, you're in your early 20s when this is sort of fully functioning. Boys, we have to wait longer in our mid-20s before we sort of start thinking about the consequences. And I think for that reason, that they will post something, they might think it's a bit of banter, a bit of a laugh with their mates, and within that context of just their friends, it could be perfectly fine. But of course, when it's on Twitter or Instagram or some other social site, then it's a much wider audience and I think that's when it can go wrong. But I think that's a hard one as well for parents to, you know, engage children in, in discussion around because I think children don't want to feel that, you know, their parents are interfering. It's their space. They don't want to feel that they're being monitored 24-7. But I do think it's important that we sort of help them to, to manage that online presence if we can. Yeah, that, I mean, that's always a tricky one, isn't it? When to monitor and when not to. How would you sort of give advice to parents on that? You don't want to be kind of like looking at every single thing they do. You've got to give them that freedom. But at the same time, we are anxious as parents, aren't we, about what's going on? And how would you best advise parents to sort of negotiate that rather sort of thin line between the two? Yeah, I think it's. A, I think that's a really good question, and, and, and it's a difficult one for parents to get right. I, I think what I always try and say to parents is, in other aspects of their children's lives, so the offline bits, if you want to call it that, that they're really good at taking an interest. You know, the, they know where they're going, they know who they're talking to. Um, whereas online, it's it's often a very private, um, you know, the sort of activity. They, they've got this device; it fits into their pocket. Um, it's very easy to sort of move it when a parent is coming up the stairs or down the corridor or something like that. But I do still think it's just trying to sort of do some of this stuff with them. You know, what are the apps that they're using? Um, are they, who are they connected with on social media? And, and it might not always be, you know, me as dad, who is the best person for this. It, it could be the aunt and uncle who are way cooler than I will ever be in the <laughs> eyes of my children, who, who might be connected with them on Instagram or some other social space. And, and, you know, not monitoring everything, as you say, but just keeping an eye. And if perhaps they do get something a little bit wrong, they can have a word um, and just try and bring them back into their sort of right path i suppose yeah so the school i was at we had a sort of a senior boy buddy system so a boy much older would buddy up with a boy that was younger and be able to just watch his social media space and if he was ever worried about it he could report it to a teacher or to, along the line so that there was a degree of accountability without that younger pupil feeling watched by a, perhaps a member of staff or parent or the like and that was quite effective but of course that requires the older people to be quite good at monitoring and quite mature in the way they handle it. So it's by, by no means perfect, but a good idea. Definitely. And, and I think we, we've just had some research recently, actually, from Roblox, uh, the gaming platform. Um, last month, this was in October. Um, and what one of the things that they found is that I think it was 91% of parents said, oh, if my child has a problem, they will come and talk to me. If it's a problem online, they'll come and speak to me. The children of those parents, 26% said that they would actually go and speak to their parents. And it's a bit, as you just said, the, the, the sort of group that they would go and talk to was their peers. And I think that that works and we know it works. It's, yeah, it's getting the balance right, really, I suppose, and making sure that they're getting a little bit of sensible advice, but nothing that's too restrictive. Otherwise, it won't work. But yeah, peer support is the best way forward. I think, I think I saw something about that research and part of the issue was that the pupils or the children were worried that if they talked to their parents that the parents' response would be take away the device rather than talk through the consequences of it. And I guess that's quite good to know as a parent, isn't it? That actually sometimes if your child comes to you, the worst thing you can do is just eliminate the problem by taking away the device. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and I get it as a parent, you know, my, my own youngest daughter, she's just gone into year seven. So she's she's got the phone, she's in the WhatsApp groups. And yes, it's restricted to within an inch of its life. But you know, I, I know that she she already sort of is aware of, of some of the content, which perhaps I, I you know prefer she wasn't. And I think the trouble is, parents want to protect their children. And that's completely understandable. But I think quite often, it's not the child's fault. So, so shall I give you a specific example? Yeah, that'd be great. Um, in a school, probably a couple of years ago now, that there was a girl in year eight, so I guess what she's 13 or something like that. And at the end of a talk that I did, this girl came up and said, can I talk to you about something that's happened on Instagram? Um, and we sat down and had a chat. And, and basically, to cut a long story short, there was a 35, 40-year-old guy who had been sending this girl naked pictures of himself on Instagram. Now, this girl has done all the right stuff. She's blocked the guy. She's reported him to Instagram, which is really good. And she's also told a few of her friends who she thinks might be connected to this trap what's happened in case it happens to them as well. And, you know, she doesn't tell anybody else except she tells me when I'm in the school that day. And and we did all the right things and the police got involved and the guy was arrested. But the, the point I think to make is I wanted to know why she didn't tell anybody else and she said to me if I told my parents what I've just told you my dad would ban me from Instagram and I remember saying to her okay you know you're not your fault you're very sensible the way you've dealt with it surely if you explained all of that to him he wouldn't ban you from Instagram and she laughed at me and she said you haven't met my dad he will ban me from Instagram and I completely understand that but actually it wasn't her fault it was somebody else who was behaving in the wrong way towards her and when we discussed it a bit further she said to me Instagram is my life you know if I'm not on Instagram I've got no idea what is happening you know every, all the sort of social arrangements are being made and I won't be part of that and that is the reason that she didn't do anything even though she knew it was wrong and I think that that's where parents can you know for all the right reasons I guess possibly overreact if I say take it out on the child, I don't quite mean take it out on the child, but actually, you know, penalising the child for something that wasn't their fault, which is hard. I yeah. think there's a real fear, isn't there? There's a real fear with parents. Can I ask, you know, phones are often, young people start with a phone at 11. And what are your sort of principal bits of advice or, or how do you, and then as you go up through the age groups, what, what are your sort of various steps that you make sure are in place? Yes. I mean, so, yeah, if you look at the Ofcom research nationally, the big jump from not owning a smartphone to owning one is between year six and year seven, you know, primary to secondary nationally. Um, and I think, you know, what I would say to parents is that when they give the child the phone for the first time, they should lock it down, not too restrictively, but of course you want to block certain types of content and so on. I think it's then about giving the child a bit of freedom and, and encouraging them to tell you. So, so, you know, with my own daughter, she said, you know, I, I saw this message on a group chat and it was the language. It was the language that wasn't good. And I think the, the reaction from some parents would be, right, well, that's it. You can't use it any longer. But I guess before the Internet came along, we all had friends who sometimes used a bit of language that perhaps they shouldn't. They wouldn't have done it in front of our parents, would they? They would have just done it within the group of friends. But, of course, now there's a written record of it, a digital record of it so parents can see and then they get upset and so on so it, it's trying to be balanced but I think yeah there has to be a progression and I think ultimately children and young people have to learn how to manage this stuff on their own you know we aren't going to go off to university with them but but I, I think that they do need some oversight when they're, they're first starting out. So they start at 11 and then the next step would be you know I think of, of our young child who's who started and it's just whatsapp and messaging 
and and many of the apps are 13 plus aren't they yeah they are yeah so it's the next sort of landmark when they actually reach 13 and well, it should be, shouldn't it, in theory? But of course, if you look at the statistics, and certainly if you talk to young people, um, most of them are using things like Instagram and Snapchat way before they're 13. If you take TikTok, which is the app of the moment, uh, where you can kind of lip sync to your favorite pop video and make sort of short form videos up to 60 seconds long and duet with other people and so on. I mean, I would have said that, that you know, I haven't got any sort of hard evidence apart from being in schools. I would have said most people who use TikTok are under 13 rather than over 13. So, so I think, you know, ideally that would be when we'd sort of introduce them to these things. But I think in reality, it's happening an awful lot earlier. And should parents be worried about that? I mean, TikTok is definitely still happening in a senior school, I assure you of that. But we've mentioned WhatsApp a couple of times already. And, you know, I think that's 15. 16, 16 yeah. is it? So uh, yet I know, you know, my nephews and nieces are on WhatsApp and they're, they're, some of them are not 16. How do we gauge when it is appropriate and when it's not? Because yeah. sometimes history is an interesting one, isn't it? Because one of the problems with WhatsApp is you can't find the history of WhatsApp, which is why sort of a thing is it the Google Hangout, which is often encouraged in schools as a way because you can trace a history. But with WhatsApp, you can't. Yes. I mean, the, the thing about WhatsApp is it uses end-to-end encryption, which in one sense is very good because it protects me and my data. Um, but equally, it's very difficult unless you've actually got somebody's phone to go and see what was said. You know, even the police, you know, even Facebook, who own WhatsApp, would not be able to interrogate uh, that data. So, so yeah, I mean, I think from a parent's point of view, what I always say to them is that they should try and focus on behavior rather than technology. Um, it, it's not quite as straightforward as that because I think, you know, there are some apps that you just would not want children and young people to be using uh, because they're not you know, appropriate, the, the content isn't appropriate, it's encouraging them to perhaps chat with strangers and share inappropriate content with strangers and so on. Um, but I think with the, the kind of staple apps like, you know, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, um, it's about what they're doing on the app. And I think parents can have that conversation because they, they know about behaviour, they know what's appropriate and inappropriate and so on. Can I go back a step? We were talking about the year seven age when they get mobile phones for the first time. And you were saying, you know, to put some monitors on there or some checks, as it were, and balances. There's going to be a lot of parents out there that go, I have no idea how to do that. I'm terrified at the idea of picking up a mobile phone and working my way through somehow putting restrictions on. Are there any good resources or things that parents can look at so that they can see something practical that's going to help them do that? Yeah, absolutely. I think the website that that I would sort of point all parents towards is a website called Internet Matters. Um, So it's internetmatters.org. And they've been set up about five years now, um, funded by industry, actually. So initially it was BT Sky, Talk Talk and Virgin. The BBC and Google are part of that uh, consortium now. And they have parents' guides to to apps, they have parents' guides to different sort of devices that their children might be using to get online, and they will take you through step by step how you set these things up. They've even got videos that kind of show you how to do it. And I think it's worth saying, you know, that the things that you could do to a device, to a, a mobile phone, amazing, you know, really granular, but it will take, as you say, a little bit of time to kind of get it right. And they've always got a mate in school who, for a fiver, will, you know, <laughs> tell them how to get around it. And I think I think that's the that's important as well, isn't it? Because Yes, we we should, I believe, do a bit of restricting when children are younger, but we'd be naive to think that when they're at somebody else's house, their broadband's been filtered the way mine has, um, and they've definitely got a friend who's got a totally unfiltered device, hence the need, in my view, for the dialogue and the discussion. That's the big thing, isn't it? When they're at someone else's house, 
that actually if there isn't a sort of cohesive approach from all the parents and they're not collaborating with a sense of this is what we're going to do, singing from the same hymn sheet, yeah. it can be quite chaotic, can't it? Absolutely. And, and, I, and I guess that probably always happened. I think when I was at school, obviously we didn't have the internet, but it was probably videos that you could watch at other people's houses, you know, that you can watch at 15 if you go around there. <laughs> um, whereas now, of course, I guess the, the, the barriers are just broken down even more. And it's interesting, I talk to parents, you know, regularly and I've had parents who said to me, well, I, I felt it was important to speak to such and such as parent and say, did you know what your children... And, and they're met with two very different reactions. One would be, thank you so much for telling me I had no idea that my son or daughter were doing X, Y and Z. And the other one is, how dare you try and tell me how to parent my own children and, and what it should be allowed in my house. So it's hard, it's hard for parents. And yeah, and I guess you're faced with very different attitudes like that. I mean, there is a, a, a website that we send people to sometimes it's called Common Sense Media, which covers apps and films and all games and, and the like, which has been quite useful. Some would say it's quite conservative. It's a little bit more on the edge of sort of prevent or, or don't watch it rather than or don't play it rather than do. But I guess it's good to just you get kids views on that. You get parent views on that. It's quite a, a useful website, too. It is, and I think Common Sense Media are really good. Um, I recommend them in my sort of talks to parents, and like you say, they've done a review on so many of the books and the apps and the games that the children are wanting to use. And I think what's good about it, it helps me as a parent make a more informed decision. Um, you know, within a couple of sentences, you know whether a game or an app is going to be suitable because they, they, they cut to the trace very quickly. So, so I think it's a useful one for parents, definitely. And it's very clear on different content, is it? You know, what you're going to come across, whether it's language or violence or sex, um, they're going to be very explicit, as you say, about that. Absolutely, yeah. And, and I think, you know, parents, you, know, you, you get bombarded with requests, don't you, from your children about different apps that they want to download and everybody else has got that particular app. But I think being able to look and, as you say, it's very clear what sort of content we're talking about and, you know, they'll, they'll tell you whether they think it's suitable. Some of the concerns about sites have been sort of these sites that sort of hold a whole pile of information, some of which is 13 plus, some of which is 18. And if you give your children the gateway into them, I'm thinking of things, I think it's called Steam, where you can get into that website. And that then is a sort of whole, a range of different types of websites you can then enter or games. And, and what would you say to parents about that type of website? Yeah, and again, I think it's a good example because I think any filtering and any monitoring that we do is only part of the story. Um, and, you know, I think you're talking about Steam's, you know, sort of the, um, entrance into sort of gaming platforms and so on. And, and again, I think, I think it's being aware of what children are doing, maybe looking at a site like Common Sense Media, which will give you a little bit of background information, but also just not being too restrictive. And, and, and just, as I keep saying, taking that interest, you know, is there a change in their behaviour? Do they suddenly seem to be very sort of secretive? Are they concerned, you know, whenever anybody comes into the room and they're online? And, and, and the other one that, that we haven't mentioned yet, but I'm sure we probably would get to, is, is I think don't be afraid as a parent to put some restrictions in place about when they can access um, any type of uh, online content. The national figure, some people are surprised at this, 62% of 12 to 15-year-olds sleep with their mobile phone in their bedroom, which I find quite astonishing. Um, because for me, the big problem there is sleep or lack of sleep. 
Um, and I think, you know, it, it's it's not being afraid as a parent, you know, to, up to 15, 16 perhaps, to say, no, you know, you can't keep your phone in your room because it's a massive distraction, you won't sleep properly, and then you won't be able to focus on whatever you're doing the next morning. But I think, again, parents often look at what other people are doing and sort of feel that they're out of kilter, so that's hard. So, so, so I do think that, that using some of the sites that we've mentioned is helpful because it just gives parents a bit more information so they can make those better choices, I hope. At what age do you start to sort of let off? as it were as a parent when do you start to say you know over to you yeah I'm not going to keep sort of hassling and demanding and yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a difficult question because I think they're all different. All of our children are different. They mature at different ages. But, but I, I think by the time they're sort of 15, 16, we have to start looking towards the fact that they are going to be leaving home, going to be off to university where there'll be very few restrictions and actually help them to perhaps make some mistakes while they're still with us in that safer environment. So, so I, you know, it's, it's difficult, but I think I think when I talk to parents of 15 and 16-year-olds, sometimes they'll say to me, oh, I had no idea I could put restrictions on a phone, I'll, I'll try and do that. And I'm always sort of wary to say to them, look, you know, if, if you take a phone off a 16-year-old and say, I'll give it back to you in an hour's time, but it's not going to work in quite the same way that will destroy your relationship with that 15 16 year old you know they'll think that you don't trust them and so on and so i do think you know in terms of the progression there's absolutely a time where we have to say let's let's give them a bit more freedom let's take some of these restrictions away yeah can i just ask you about cyberbullying because that's obviously very much on the increase mm. it's quite hidden often from staff and parents is there any advice you give or i mean first of all how big a problem is it and is there any advice you give to sort of parents and staff actually in in terms of how you cope with it yeah i mean cyberbullying it's it's the thing that we talked about you know initially when the internet appeared i think and um i think there's a slight sort of concern that you know schools have done it and it's not really an issue it is still an issue as you say i mean a lot of the research that's come out in the last 12 months suggests around 50 percent of teens will have experienced some form of unpleasant content or contact online um you could argue whether you might want to call it cyberbullying or not but i think the really scary bit is that again the research would suggest that around two-thirds of children won't go and tell an adult what's happened to them because they think that the adult will overreact, it'll be embarrassing, they don't quite have the words to be able to tell somebody, or they think there'll be sort of um, a consequence from, um, you know, the, the, the person who's sent them the unpleasant content in the first place. I think in terms of how we manage it, I think we have to recognise that, you know, reporting to an adult is not the only way. So, you know, they can report things to Instagram, to YouTube, to Snapchat, to Facebook. And I think increasingly they are doing that. I think those companies themselves are, are doing some quite innovative things as well. So, for example, Instagram, they're using artificial intelligence, which will pick up if you are typing something that might be seen as a little bit problematic um, and it will just sort of post something and say, are you sure you want to send this? And of course you can still send it if you want to, but it just gives people that pause for thought, which I think sometimes, you know, it's instant, isn't it? You know, you, you, you get a message through, you need to respond immediately and you press send and then it's too late. And I think the other thing I think that parents and teachers can do is just try to encourage children to talk to them, look for those signs that maybe something isn't quite right you know they're, they're looking a bit unhappy they're a little bit moody which I appreciate is a, a problem for most teenagers so it's normal teenage behavior um, but but I think just kind of being there asking the question but but hopefully making sure that your children think you won't overreact because if they think you're going to overreact they won't come and tell you in the first place 
we should say that the builders are in full flow right now, aren't they? So they if are. you're if you're worried about what you're listening to uh, right now, it's probably a drill going off next door. They're doing a magnificent job, it has to be said. That's fascinating, Carl. So, I mean, what I'm hearing is that you're very much into this relational approach and keep talking, keep communication lines open. What are the alarm bells? What are the real alarm bells that parents should be aware of? I think, it, you know, the, the, the trouble is we, we see all these awful stories in the newspapers which are usually very extreme and thankfully not that likely to happen to most of our children. I, I think, you know, when a parent would spot that something wasn't right, there can be lots of different reasons, but, you know, perhaps a child will stop using technology, that they won't want to have their phone switched on, and, you know, that, that they've previously been welded to the device and now they're not using it at all. They can often become quite withdrawn, and they can become quite jumpy if a message does come into a device but equally it might be none of those and I think that that's why as you say the, the relationship bit is the most important knowing your child and parents do know their children and I get that it's hard when they're teenagers but just take an interest in that world because it is their world and the chief medical officer actually earlier this year she published some guidance on screen time back in February and she said parents should be aware of what their children are doing online but not too intrusive or judgmental I think that's really important. I might not understand the fascination with Snapchat or TikTok, but they're getting something from it. And I'll just share with you one statistic um, Ofcom said, this was earlier in, in 2019, 91% of teenagers said that using social media made them feel closer to their friends or made them feel happy. So they are getting something from it. Just because I think it's a bit of a waste of time doesn't mean that it is for them. It's quite persuasive, these sites, aren't they? And they're, they're designed to be so. Um, is there any kind of way we can educate our children to understand that and to be sort of a bit more savvy about how they sort of have their relationship with these sites? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think persuasive design is something that we've become quite familiar with in the last sort of few years. And I think we have to be transparent with children. Um, so, I, you know, I, I will say to them, you shouldn't beat yourself up too much if you think you're spending too much time online because that was the intention. There's a really um, interesting organisation called the Centre for Humane Technology and it's been set up by a lot of ex-Silicon Valley employees, so it's an ex-Vice President from Facebook, the guy who invented the endless scroll on Instagram, which we just take for granted now, but it, it wasn't always there. Uh, and one of the quotes from this organisation that they said, you know, we as individuals we could try to use our devices more responsibly, you know, so spend less time on them, but it'll be our willpower against hundreds of engineers who are paid to keep us glued to the screen. And, and I guess, you know, just so, so people, you know, understand, but I, I think that the most common sort of um, example of persuasive design is on YouTube, where you watch a YouTube video, it finishes, and the next one starts automatically without you doing anything. And, you know, 70% of all YouTube videos watched uh, are recommendations from YouTube. And the AI, it's pretty good, isn't it? You know, it normally will show me something that I'm vaguely interested in, but I think the point is I didn't choose to go and find that video. It was given to me, and I thought, oh, well, I might as well watch it so, so I do I, I think you're making a really important point and I think by talking to children about that and explaining why they might find it difficult I mean they're using strategies that the gambling companies use to give you that little dopamine fix just at the right time and, and it's other sort of subtle things so you know on, on whatsapp 
I send you a message. I know that you've read it because there's two blue ticks. Why haven't you responded? It's taken five minutes. And I can cope with that. But, you know, 12 and 13-year-olds will get quite concerned that they've said something to upset somebody else and, and so on. So it's very clever the way that they've done it. They've invested millions, of course, as we know. Do you, do you think it is addictive? I mean, you mentioned that correlation with gambling. Is, is there a, a design to actually create an addiction? Or do you think that you can fall into addiction in this area? Uh, absolutely. I mean, and, and, and it's not just me that would say that. I mean, the the World Health Organization, back at the beginning of 2018, I think it was, that they designated internet gaming disorder as a disorder. Um, and there's a list of symptoms, and I actually share them w with young people, and that they recognize them, you know, or elements of them in themselves. I'm not suggesting everyone's got internet gaming disorder, but I think we've all got aspects of it, perhaps. I mean, it's interesting as we're discussing this on the day where the founder of the World Wide Web has just written a blueprint of, I think, seven or nine statements about the correct use of the World Wide Web or things that people should sign up for. He clearly feels that it's not being used in the way that it was originally designed. Yes, I, I think quite sad, really, for Sir Tim Berners-Lee, you know, having created this um, amazing thing. But sadly, it's, it's about behaviour, as we've already said, and I think people aren't using it in the right way, and I think he's very clear that we have to call it out. We have, well, it's down to us. It's up to us. We can create something and, you know, sort of moving forward and ensure that it's something that's a, a more positive experience for people. But it must be so soul-destroying, I think. But, but again... I think we have to be a little bit balanced, you know, that the, the press will tell us that it's all doom and gloom. I think for a lot of young people, most of what they're doing on there is a positive. It is, but we don't, that doesn't sell newspapers, so we don't hear about it. That's really interesting to hear. You know, often we can feel that whatever they're doing is, is negative, and actually they should be sitting like we are, looking at each other, talking to one another. But actually, to be doing it is a positive thing. I think I think it is, yeah. And I think it, it's a shame that we don't focus more on that. I mean, you know, you both know the amazing work that schools do and how they will harness technology to, you know, you know, create all these opportunities. But we just don't talk about that. It's not the headline on the news. Whereas the fact that X number of MPs are not restanding for election because of the abuse they received on social media, that that, that will you know, get people interested. So no, I do, I, I personally do believe that the benefits of being online far outweigh the risks, absolutely. I think that's conversations again. It's talking to your teenagers and actually acknowledging when they've used the internet in a way which is really clever and unique and advantageous because what they need to hear us acknowledge that it's a very good thing and they need to see us model it as well in that sense don't they quite quite because i, I think um one of the things that professor sonia livingston um who's one of the experts in this area has said is that you know we hoped that actually young people would be creating huge amounts of content rather than just consuming it and some do and, and it's amazing what they're able to do but i think sadly a lot of it is more passive perhaps and i, and I think you know that that's not always bad you know the fact that they'll sit and watch a, a YouTube tutorial and then go and do whatever it's taught them how to do. That's brilliant. Um, but I think we'd like to see more positive creation of, of good content by young people as well. Yeah. How can we encourage that positivity? So I, I think one of the ways that we can is by embracing you know, technology in, in the sort of classroom environment. I really worry when I go into schools and, and hear that the senior leaders are thinking about just banning, you know, technology. Um, and I always say to them, well, why? You know, and, and, and if you're going to say to me it's because children are sitting on their phones when they're supposed to be learning, as, a, as an ex-teacher, I think I'm allowed to say, well, I would 
question what the teaching's like if actually they're they're able to be sitting doing things on their phone. So, so I think by allowing them to use some of these amazing tools in classroom environments, I think that's how you'll encourage that creativity. And even even with some of the apps that we've talked about, I mean, you know, some, some real sort of entrepreneurs using things like TikTok and Instagram to sort of shout about what they do, but they're in the minority, unfortunately. It's about how you use the tool rather than the tool itself in most cases. Can I just ask about gaming? Because that's a, a, a real concern for many parents, and stereotypically it's, it's boys, isn't it, that are often gaming. When Again, it's that line between when are they spending so much time on a game and when, when should we start to be concerned? And again, I know we've talked about conversations, but what, what red lines would you sort of think about in terms of gaming? No, I think that's a really good question, and I know it's something that parents worry about. Um, a lot of the researchers um, in this space, there's a guy called Dr. Mark Griffiths, and, and he he lectures on this sort of thing and he's written all the research really and and he said you know parents will often come and say I'm so worried about my son it very often is uh, teenage boys um, spending so much time online and, and he said to me I always say to the parent and w what else is the problem is he failing all his exams you know does he not get out of bed in the morning and um, has he got no friends and, and I think you know Mark's view would be Actually, you know, it, it's normal to be a little bit obsessed by something. You, you know, you, you might spend all day sitting reading a book or watching Friends on, you know, binge watching a box set. But actually, it's only when it starts to impact on other aspects of your life that you really need to be concerned. And, and I appreciate that, you know, it probably isn't great if um, my son or daughter are spending 12 hours on a Saturday gaming. But then I think it's down to me as the parent to try and break that up a little bit and get them to do other things as well. And, and I think that's increasingly more difficult as they get older but again going back to the the chief medical officer she sort of said all of us not just children should be taking breaks from screens every you know couple of hours or so so it's quite good to think about the whole child and are they going outside are they seeing their friends are they having quality time with their family when when they've got free time and if the answer to all of those is a kind of yes then actually the gaming is clearly not having a big impact their work's still okay so not to worry about it i guess for some people, it's that day-night time idea as well, is when they're on, when they are gaming, and that kind of like post sort of nine o'clock, 10 o'clock gaming culture, which can be quite um, pervasive in, in young boys as well. Yes, and, and, and I think the, the, the couple of other things that I, I would sort of say about gaming, I, th I think what we do know, and again, the chief medical officer said this, you know, we shouldn't be using screens within about an hour of trying to go to sleep, the, the blue light and the melatonin levels and so on. So I think that's, that's pretty clear. And I also think that the other perhaps challenge with gaming is that persuasive design that you mentioned earlier is absolutely built into those um, sort of platforms. And, you know, sadly, some games, you know, that they have certain points where you can save. And so I often get parents saying to me, oh, dreadful arguments with my son or daughter, you know, telling me that he needs an extra five minutes and then furious and smashing the controller. Sadly, because the game has been created in such a way that actually if you don't get to the save point, you've just lost the last hour and a half of game time, which is hugely frustrating for anybody, but built into the design. So again, it's not really their fault at that stage, and it's about trying to inquire why they need that extra five minutes and what the purpose of it is. Is it actually to complete and finish a section, or is it simply they want five more minutes? Yes, Yes, because, I, I, yeah, and I think children have always had the, can I have five more minutes before bedtime, you know, and, and so it's part of their DNA. But but I think, sadly, uh, there are some examples within sort of gaming platforms where it, it's been done on purpose, yeah, and it is hard. I'm finding this fascinating, Carl, you know, that you are presenting a, 
a far more positive impression of, of really what these mobile phones and this, this sort of whole industry is about. There is a sort of sense of fear and anxiety than parents. And is that, do you think that's principally led by the fact that they don't fully know or the press and we're only hearing the horror stories? I think, yeah, it's both the things that you've just said. I think one, that they don't fully know because they're not using those platforms in the same way, but also the horror stories, and the horror stories are awful. You know, if, if you think about, you know, the story of Brett Bednar, for example, who was a 14-year-old boy who met somebody through an online game that he was playing and eventually, you know, sadly lost his life, you know, met this person and was murdered. But, but horrific though that story is, I think, you know, for most young people, when they hear about that, which they will have done, there are TV programs about it, there are resources in schools about it, but I think most of them think, goodness, you know, that, that's dreadful, that's horrific, but it would never happen to me. And actually, thankfully, most of them are right. It will never happen to them or to anybody that they know. I think we can't ignore that, but I think when we try and start our conversations about online safety by using very extreme examples like that, it, that's what brings parents to restrict and to block and to you know say that you can't have certain things. So, so I do think we've got to be positive, really. I think there are challenges, and I think, you know, I, I worry a little bit that as a society we're just kind of getting some of these things wrong because it's not just children, is it? You know, a lot of the abuse that we see on platforms like Twitter, it's coming from adults as much as young people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting that you, you mentioned that horrific story, but stories like that can help us to inform and educate as opposed to restrict, can't they? They actually can have a terrible as they are, they can actually benefit the community in the sense of informing us how to educate our children and inform them better about what to do in situations like that. No, absolutely, and, and I think they can. I think used in the right way, they can be very powerful. And I think one of the very powerful things about the story of Breck was that Breck you know, was a regular 14-year-old boy. Um, and when I talk to other 14-year-olds, I'll say, you know, he went to a good school, he had supportive parents, he was intelligent, he was popular, and he played online games like Call of Duty. Uh, and then I'll say to them, how many of you play Call of Duty? And of course, none of them are old enough to, but nearly every hand in the room goes up. <laughs> so, so I think you're right. I think that there, there really is an opportunity, provided we use those stories in the right way. And equally, you know, another example was um, the story about Molly Russell, who sadly committed suicide over a year ago, and her family, understandably, I think, placed some of the blame um, at Instagram's door because she was seeing that sort of harmful content. That That is not okay that she was seeing that sort of content. And to be fair to Instagram, they've taken steps, you know, to, to, to make sure that if you're looking, for example, for self-harm content, you won't get more self-harm content as a result. That, that's not how it works any longer uh, with that particular type of sort of content. You could say, well, it's a bit of a shame that they didn't do that earlier, and I would agree. And I think one of the things that we're saying to new companies now is you need to integrate safety by design. It shouldn't be an afterthought. And I could be cynical and say, well, you know, the trouble is these companies are trying to make money for their shareholders, which I understand, but not at the price of child safety. But there is a sense that they are perhaps self-managing a little bit better and, and taking better decisions. They've, they've stopped the like uh, on Instagram, haven't they, as a way of 
stopping that constant dopamine rush from getting a like. Um, so there is, again, we can be quite negative about these companies and for, often for good reason, but there is some good news coming out from, from them as well. No, I, I think there absolutely is. And I, I, we've mentioned a couple of things that Instagram have done. And I think a, a lot of the platforms now, um, they've built, built in sort of well-being and screen time tools as well. So you can be given a notification when you've you know reached a limit that you set for yourself. So, so I think they are. I think, you know, and part of that is, is down to the pressure that they're being put under, but I don't care why it happens. I think what is important is that they're doing something. And actually they're doing an awful lot of work around well-being being and combating cyberbullying and so on that sadly we often don't hear about but it is there. James is right in that you've been very positive and I, I feel sort of bad always mentioning some of the things that want to be raised but cyberbullying and gaming but sexting is another one I think that we should just discuss. Obviously that has been on the rise. Is there again what are your insights into that area? Yeah so sexting is something that I, I believe happens in every single secondary or senior school in the, in the land I think if they tell you it isn't then they're either not aware and a bit naive or they're not being honest with you and I think when you read the research and there's been a lot of research done across the world on sexting I think what it's very clear about is that it's normal teenage sexual curiosity one of the sort of you know authors of the research is a guy called Professor Andy Fippen from Plymouth University and he sort of says you know teenagers today they carry a camera around in their pocket they are going to take pictures of things that they shouldn't I also think that, that perhaps we've got the sort of education around sexting a little bit wrong. Um, so we, we are very keen to say to children, don't do it, don't do the sexting thing. But if you think about sex, we don't tell them not to have sex, we tell them how to have safe sex. Um, and I mentioned at the beginning that, that I work with safer internet centres around Europe and the Belgian safer internet centre for a couple of years now, they've been talking about how you might do safe sexting and, and sort of saying, well, you know, have a conversation with the person that you're going to share an image with and actually, you know, make sure that your head's not in an image, make sure there's no sort of jewellery or piercings or tattoos that would identify it as being you. Just just take some precautions. Now, not everybody is ready for that in the UK, and I appreciate that. It's not very um, British, is it? <laughs> it's not. It's not. But um, but I think it's there's, there's a bit of sense in that. And, and I, I, just on the sexting thing, I did a workshop with some sixth formers a few months ago and one of them said to me society's all messed up and when I asked him to explain he said you know you tell us just not to do the sexting thing it's not appropriate we shouldn't do it and he said but then on mainstream tv there is a television program called Naked Attraction where you choose a prospective partner by looking at their naked body and deciding which one you like the look of. And he said to me, how, how does that work? And, and it's an interesting point. You know, and again, I think with a lot of these issues, it's society who, who sort of need to think about how they manage it and, and perhaps put some changes in place. Yeah. The other problem, sorry, but just with sexting, of course, is that um, it's against the law. And, you know, so sharing an image of somebody under the age of 18, which is an indecent image, you know, that, that, that is against the law. And I think, sadly, again, the stories we see in the press are the stories which suggest young people have got on the wrong side of that. They've received a caution and so on. So it, it's not easy. It's difficult to manage. So you're a parent and you've got teenage children and uh, young children that are coming up and have you know, grabbing these phones and you're worried, what are the, you know, uh, if you were to give a short list of the things that they must do and must watch out for, I'm hearing the behaviour and keeping conversation lines open, but, but what else do you really put in place and make sure is there? 
Yeah, so so I, I think as a family, we, we, we have some um, agreements. I'm, I'm not saying necessarily a written agreement or something like that, but, you know, for instance, we won't use phones or devices at the dinner table, and that means I can't do it as dad either, you know. There has to be a time when we sit and have a conversation. I think when we give them a device um, of their own or if they're using my device, we aren't afraid to put some restrictions on there. Um, I think we have an open dialogue about the games or the apps that they might want to download and use. And I think if we say... you can't have this particular one we, we talk about why so so that that transparency is there and I think if you do that from an early age I'm, I'm not saying it'll be seamless and there'll never be any problems but I do think it makes it an awful lot easier to have those conversations I mean a classic conversation is why can't you play that game because it's a 15 or it's a 13 plus and you're 11 but everybody else does but everyone else does what well, how would you respond to that yeah and and I, and I Fortnite's the classic example, isn't it? You know, it, it was a 12. So many eight-year-olds that I was talking to in schools were playing it. Uh, and they would say to me, it's okay if I play it, Mr. Hopwood, because my mum said I could. Now, who am I to say that their mum is wrong? And I, and I think, again, it comes back to we know our own children. You know, we also know that the kind of ratings that games are given is fairly sort of black and white, perhaps. So I think it's, you know, have a look at it yourself. Go to Common Sense Media, as you said, and um, just try to make an informed decision. And, and, and I think, you know, it's not against the law to let your child play that game it's not against the law for them to have a tiktok account before they're 13 it's just against the terms and conditions um, and i think it's just being clear what you think is appropriate for your child and you can only do that by being a bit more aware of what it is finally um carl i just wondered if you if you could sort of cast your mind forward five five or six years can you see any trends coming in this area good and bad uh, is there anything you think we should be aware of or look out for yeah, so it was a really good question. I mean, I've just come back from the Safer Internet Forum uh, in Brussels, which is the European Commission's sort of conference that they do annually. And one of the things that was being discussed there was artificial intelligence. And I guess that can be very positive. You know, we're already seeing social media companies using AI and machine learning to, to give users a safer experience. But I think as technology gets faster and quicker and it's, it's everywhere. I, I think that there are going to be challenges. So, for example, you know, for years in schools, I think we've sort of said to children, when you do a Google search, don't, don't just accept the first answer, you know, be a bit more critically aware. Whereas most young people that I talk to have some sort of, you know, Alexa or an Echo Dot that only gives them the top search result, doesn't it? When they ask Alexa a question, they only get, you know, so so I think we need to start to be a little bit more critical of things. And I suppose one of the other things that, that we're becoming increasingly aware of are things like deep fakes. So deep fakes, you may have seen the videos recently where Boris Johnson endorsed Jeremy Corbyn for Prime Minister and vice versa. Um, and it was pretty good. I mean, yeah, if you look closely, you could see that it wasn't quite right. But what I'm told by the experts is that deep fakes will get better and better and better. And whereas, you know, until recently you had to have sort of significant processing power and service space to, you know, do one of these properly, I think in a year or so's time, it'll be at the push of a button on a phone with an app that you can download. So I think it, it's powerful. And I think that's, again, why we need to be having conversations. And that suggests, doesn't it, that really all of us, but particularly young people, need to approach the net with a degree of sort of criticism in the sense of, of, of analysing it and not taking what they see at face value. And that's, um, that's a tricky skill, isn't it? It is. And it is. And, and I think it's a skill that, that historically we've been very good at sort of teaching children about, but it's just more difficult now because, you know, 
checking sources, words on a page is one thing, when an image or even a video absolutely appears to be the real thing, how, how do you manage that? And of course, that's why we have fact-checking services and so on. But which ones can we rely on and which ones do we need to be more careful of? But I think, you know, we haven't really mentioned the school curriculum, but I think it's very clear that, you know, online safety is a part of that now. It's compulsory. Schools have got to do it. And part of that is managing information. So I think we will be telling them and giving them more guidance on it. Carl Hubbard, thank you very much for your time. That's been very stimulating. It's a pleasure. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to Talking Teenagers. Music has been by Rue Paynes. Editing by George Purvis and James Certin. For more information about I Can and I Am Charity... We provide presentations and resources and help build self-confidence in young people. Visit their website at icaniam.com. Be a soul.